Welcome to Your Story Matters, the show where we share inspiring stories from all around the world. After you've listened to this one, why don't you tell us yours? Share your story at yourstorymatters.net. But first, here's your host, speaker and writer, Angela Schaefers. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Eric Lehman. He is founder of Dream Catalyst, making dreams matter one child at a time. And he'll be sharing about his amazing story today and his passion and purpose in helping kids. Before we talk about that, though, uh, I want to welcome you, Eric, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. I'm excited about sharing your story. I know you and I have talked about it already, but I think that you sharing it with the listeners of Your Story Matters is really going to have a positive impact on them. And then, of course, we want to talk about all the amazing things that you're doing to help other people. So can you tell the listeners your background and history and how that led up to the pivotal point in your story and what happened with that? Sure. Well, the story, it sort of has multiple beginnings and, and a whole bunch of different middles. Mm-hmm. One of the things I realized is that really early on, it was sort of, I had a tale of two mothers in the same mother, you know, so I I grew up in, in a single parent household for a really long time. And uh, when I first experienced what it was like to to live uh, with my mom as a single parent, it was it was amazing. It was it was everything I, I thought I could have asked for. You know, my mom and I would we would stay up until two or three in the morning just drawing and sharing time with each other. And you know, I I sort of you know I knew it wasn't normal. I knew it wasn't like the, the experience that other kids were having my age. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew it was just like really amazing. You know, I just had all this quality bonding time with my mom mm-hmm. and we aligned on, on a lot of different things where, where art was concerned. And it was just, it was really great to have that time. And, and so I think what that did was that it, in essence, it so, sort of set an expectation for what the rest of my life could look like. And, and at some point that, that time shifted and that time changed and, and the, the nice, Thing of drawing didn't happen anymore, and and the mother that I experienced then was was in a in a darker period, uh, and and some of it is literally is she actually transitioned from like drawing and painting to to photography, and she actually had a dark room, and 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 she sort of retreated to that room a lot, and 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 I wasn't always in that room, you know, so it it you know it was. Is more symbolic than I ever knew of, right. of what this period, you know, of transition really was. That that sort of cycle happened. You know, there were times where we would be really connected, and then there were times where it was really dark. And, and dark times were were really really dark. Not only were you know were we not connecting and spending quality time together, but whatever time we did spend together was really irritable and really uh, full of anger and control and just a whole bunch of, of um, negative energy that really didn't, didn't do well for me. So I guess what I, what I started doing is I started looking externally, you know, uh, to my house. Like I, I started just getting really involved in, in, in school work and extracurricular activities. And I, I kind of took on this like avoidance strategy. So I did whatever I could 
to not go home for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. So I, I wound up, you know, joining three or four, maybe five clubs at a time and learning how to take the latest late bus as possible and, you know, just just to, to have an excuse to be at school. And and so much of this was sort of subconscious. Like I didn't know that I was doing it and what reasons I was doing it for. It just felt right. And mm-hmm. so as as I was going towards my, my senior year in high school, I learned that, that I got grounded a lot. You know, I was punished for a lot of random things for a really extended period of time, which really cut into my, my social life. I noticed this trend in my junior year. I guess what happened was I met with my health teacher and I said, you know, I really, I really want to create something so that, you know, our, our peers can come you know, back to the school and, and socialize. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of interesting that I did that because it was sort of part of this, this loophole that I, that I experienced when I was grounded. Whenever I was grounded, I was allowed to still participate in school-based activities. So I created this thing called Teen Center, which is this Friday night social event at the school. So I thought I was like brilliant. I thought I was just, you know, creating the best of all worlds. You know, I was allowed to still be grounded, but I was allowed to still have a social life. So Teen Center went into effect uh, my senior year, and I was so excited that it was happening. As was usual, I was grounded during the, during the first night of Teen Center. And um, because it was a school-related event, I was allowed to go anyway. But at some point, my mom just, you know, radically changed her mind and, and needed me not to, to run Teen Center that night. And she actually had me picked up from Teen Center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like it, it, it sent my heart reeling, um, mm-hmm. you know, because anything that I did, you know, to, to become an individual and to connect with my peers, uh, was always in question. And I guess the story was like everything that I showed my mom that I loved was, was always the first thing that could have gotten taken away when, when I was being disciplined. Right. Getting pulled out of teen center was, was sort of like a last straw situation. Like mm-hmm. I was, like desperately like alone in that moment. I, I, I had no idea how to contain my emotions. It was just a really challenging time for me because the other thing, you know, that I was really good at was sensing emotions, sensing, you know, the, the energy in a room and, and doing whatever I could to either blend in or to not create a, like a, a manic episode in, in my household. During this time, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do all those things. I didn't have the energy to to do what I needed to do to avoid magnifying an event. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. So it just it went the other way, and you know what happened was like my mom picked me up from Teen Center, and um, and I hadn't eaten much all day, so we went to this deli. And at some point, I was like, I was hungry, but I was like stewing. You know, my mom said, "Well, put a smile on your face," mm-hmm. and it was like weird moment that I just, I'll never forget. And, um, and I said, there's no way I can put a smile on my face. I'm not happy at all. Mm-hmm. And when she said it again, she said, put a smile on your face. And I said, well, no, I can't do that. And then she said, well, then give me your keys. And, and it was just like, I was, it was just like in flow of conversation as if like, give me your keys was the next logical thing. I'm like, what do you mean? Give me your keys. She's like, well, if, if you're not going to live by my rules, you can't live in my house. Mm. give me your key. Mm. And so that was like a really, so, so the way it then manifested is that she, 
she st- she literally got up from her seat and started chasing me around this picnic table asking for my keys. Mm. Uh, so it was it was just a really um, sort of out of body experience. Like I had never pictured this event happening in my whole entire life, and right. I lived you know, a relatively controlled, like planned out existence, and this was just so far outside of what I could have thought was going to happen. So I ran ran to my house with my house keys. And I just figured maybe, maybe this, this argument would de-escalate. Maybe, you know, things would calm down by the time uh, my mom got home. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't, you know, it just, it, it didn't de-escalate. And it resulted in eventually, you know, kind of the, the argument snowballing. Then at some point she sent me into my room asking me to pack, you know, my bags mm-hmm. and, and while I was doing that and packing three bags, my mom was calling the police. Mm. So during that, you know, span of time, it was just a very, again, you know, out of body experience. I never thought that like this would happen. Right. But for some reason, and this is this is like really where I'm just so happy. You know, like like I was, you know, some kind of letting go, some surrender energy just came into me and just said, you know what, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I packed the bags and I was just, you know, I let go into whatever was about to happen. And slowly but surely, you know, two police officers um, pulled up to my driveway and uh, one started talking to me and one started talking to my mom. And at some point, my mom just got so agitated and so frustrated with the whole situation that she barged into the to my bedroom. She took the three bags that I had packed and she just threw them outside the house. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. That was a pretty powerful thing to witness. And then the police officers just kind of conferenced with me and they said, Eric, we don't think you're safe here. We're going to take you with us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with that surrender energy, I just left with them, just not knowing what was about to happen, but knowing that it had to have been the right way, you know, right direction to go. Right. So then, then like one of the first miracles happened which is they took me to this homeless shelter for youth. It it was like two miles away from where I was living. And I had no idea it existed until I was living there. It was almost like an oasis. To me, it was was a castle. Mm, That's powerful. Let me stop you there before you talk about your experiences at the shelter. What was going on as far as your mother's mental health? Do you feel like she had some sort of breakdown when this dark time came and how, what could you share with the listeners about experiencing that? Because as you know, mental health is very significant in many people's lives and families. And I would love for you to share your insight and perspective on that. Well, sure. Thanks for asking. And and this is where it's really interesting because, you know, I'm telling this part of the story from the, the lenses of a 17 year old who doesn't, you know, know too many, too many terms or names for things. Um, you know, I was just describing things as kind of like light or dark time. In retrospect, you know, this is, it was, you know, mostly indicative of what someone living in a family with bipolar disorder would, would feel like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of extreme highs, the extreme lows, and the unpredictability uh, of what any day is going to look like. I don't look at individuals with mental illness, I look at family systems with mental illness, mm-hmm. and we had illness in, in our family system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a finger-pointing thing. It wasn't saying, you know, 
this was just one person. Like, we all had a mental illness environment or a mentally ill environment. You know, I guess the good news is that the more I was able to talk about it, the less I knew I was alone. Right. And as I started talking about it, um, you know, for a while, I was just, I did feel sort of alone. You know, I lived a whole bunch of the days in the shelter, not not sharing with too many other people that I was there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as I continued down that path, the more I shared, the more freedom I got. You right. know, the, the truth does set you free in so many different ways. That's right. Um, that makes and sense. here's the tough part, you know, flash forward, you know, almost 22 years later, you know, the, the players in this story are still alive. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet my story is my story. And so for a really long time, I, I didn't share in, in sort of documented form what I went through mm -hmm. um, because I, I sort of wanted to protect, you know, my mom or the whole situation because she's still alive and she still has to wake up every day knowing who she is and what happened. Right. You know, and this is a woman I still love dearly to this day. Mm -hmm. so, and I'm glad you mentioned that because as you and I had talked before we started the show, there's many people out there who have stories that are afraid to tell them because they don't want to hurt the other people involved. But I think that, well, that is a good point to have and, and to be aware of other people's feelings and needs it's also, as you said, your story, and sharing that story is powerful because it can encourage and inspire other people and help others. So I appreciate that you're able to willingly share about it. Have you been able to repair, if you will, the relationship with your mom since that event? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, I think repair is, repair is actually almost an external process for many few people. Um, and, and what I mean by that is like, I was able to heal myself and, and, and not own the, the really bad things that were said about me or to me, you know, some of that healing was done by learning more and more about mental illness, but that healing was done by learning more and more about me and just saying, you know what, Eric, you, you don't deserve to be told that by anyone. Right. And, you know, in essence, God didn't make something that was throwawayable. Right. You know? Absolutely. That's a very good point. And that is definitely healing when you can come to that realization and really believe that throughout your heart and soul. So that's an awesome thing to share with the listeners. Let's talk about, before we talk about your experience and some things that shifted for you within the shelter. So you're a dad now. A good one I can see from Facebook and all the things you post and share. What was it like and how did that impact you as far as growing up without a dad? And what do you have to say about that when it comes to the impact on children growing up? Wow. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still learning into my role as, as father. You know, um, I think for, for a really long time with my kids, I wanted to sort of do the, the, the anti-parenting. Mm -hmm. So I want whatever my parents didn't do for me, for my kids. Right. We usually so, do. <laughs> like I would say a good 10 years of overcompensation mm -hmm. in that direction, sort of in, in, in the direction of the past and not in the direction of the present with my own kids. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, my dad was sort of around, um, but he was never, you know, in what society might call like the dad role. 
so I think, you know, what's really important, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a single parent right now and, and my kids are, are so amazing, you know, in and of themselves, like regardless of them being my kids, you know, Mm -hmm. I want to treat them that way. Like I want them to know that I'm not caring about them just because they're mine. I'm caring about them because they're amazing. Mm. Um, all kids are amazing. Yes. And I guess what I can say that I learned is I learned to be present focused with them. One of the, the quotes that, that really drive me, that drives me every day, uh, is, is we need to be the change we wish to see in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and many people, they focus on the word change. And I focus on the word be. And really what I mean by that is, is I need to, to show my kids actively what is possible, not by telling them, not by teaching them how to fish, but by inspiring them to fish, you right. know? That's right. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, and I, so, so that's really, you know, my, and, and I, I don't get it right all the time. And there are some times where old anger gets a hold of me and I'm, I'm human just like everyone else. You know, I get to work through that just like everyone else. And yet when, when, when tempers flare or things happen, you know, there's, there's a cooling off period and there's a beautiful humility and there's just, you know, being in the present moment. So, yeah, I mean, for so long, I tried to be like the cleavers, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm, yep. And that just wasn't real, you right. know? Uh, and, and so I think living into my own highest dreams for myself and showing my kids that it's possible is, is really the best way I, I get to be a dad. Right. That makes sense. And I'm glad you shared what you did because I think it's important for people to remember that regardless of our story or even our circumstances, we have the option to do our best. And actually each day we can turn everything around by being in that moment and striving to be the best that we can be. And so that's something that I love to have guests share with the listeners because there's so many people out there who feel like it's too late, they can't do anything or they can't overcome that part of their story that needs the healing or that wasn't necessarily a good part. So it's awesome that you were able to share that and you've had that enlightenment. I think I appreciate that, that, that sort of understanding of it. I mean, you know, what I've learned since, since that story a multitude of times is, is that, you know, we're all given different stories, different lessons for different reasons, and they're all perfect. You know, when I, when I first lived into the shelter, you know, I met kids who were in situations that I couldn't, I couldn't fathom, right. you know, here, you know, living in a homeless shelter, and I was, you know, talking with, with girls who weren't girls in some ways, and they were girls in other ways, and they had already been raped, perhaps by family members, perhaps by friends, you know, if they survive this, I can survive this, you know, right. whatever I want, nothing compared to this. Only kind of way more recently did I realize that I survived what I was supposed to survive. I sort of thrived it, you know, maybe that's, the right word because you know I think that we all get stories we all get lessons and I think it, it sort of matters very little the content of, of what we survived it matters what we did afterwards mm. and that's that's really what I learned you had mentioned when you and I talked in the past something significant that occurred within the homeless shelter that kind of spurred your dreams and passion coming to fruition or starting if you will a few things happened. I mean, you know, the first thing I remember is, you know, I got kicked out on a Friday, you know, got went through intake at this place called Seabury Barn on Friday night, 
And then, you know, I, I, I cried for like two days straight. Mm. And then on Sunday, uh, I just, I just sat around with the shelter staff and I said, okay, I sort of came to the decision that I wanted to win. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I had this intentional meeting with them and I said, you know, I, I'm in theater arts, I'm a singer, I'm, you know, I do all these extracurricular things. I work, you know, at this music store. And I don't want any of that to change just because I'm living here. And and what can we do about that? Right. And, like, it just amazed me because, like, the shelter staff, I don't think they had ever, I don't know if they'd ever experienced someone from the same community living in the shelter. Normally it was, like, a remote location for most people. Right. Um, so here I was, like, engaged in the same community where the shelter was, and the staff just rallied around my schedule. and. Mm-hmm out how to get me to and from every single rehearsal and to and from every single day of work I had. And it was, it was amazing just to feel the, the love of these strangers right. you know, these, who, who were in essence paid to care about me. Right. Um, and it was really clear early on that, that, you know, whether they were on schedule or not, you know, they, they gave me the rides that I needed to, to keep my dreams intact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pretty incredible in and of itself. And then at some point I learned that I was like 40 days into a 30-day shelter. It was kind of this funny thing where I was like, wow, you know, I probably need to figure out a next step and probably need to just communicate more and more my situation to, to my friendship network. So at that point I, I started telling my friends and, and my best friend Justin, you know, heard what was going on. And basically uh, went to his mom and said, you know, I've got this friend living at this shelter. You know, what can we do? So that night, uh, Melanie Mason, my best friend's mom, called the shelter and offered offered me a bed, um, offered me a place to stay that wasn't the shelter. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, and this is it's it's interesting because this part of the story didn't come back to me until relatively recently. But, but I actually declined it when, when the offer first came in because I was going to try to go to family counseling for another week. And I had such optimism that, you know, something would shift and some, something would create the trust necessary for me to move back home. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't happen, you know. Uh, that week of family counseling came and went and nothing compelling happened to give me the sense of trust that I, that I wanted in my mom's house. So I called Melanie Mason back and I said, is the room still there? And she said, yeah. And that night I moved in with my best friend's folks. And as a senior in in high school, the the step, you know, like October through early December Mm -hmm. is you transition to college application time. Mm -hmm. This is where kind of miracles just keep on happening. You know, my best friend's sister went to, uh, to Duke. And, and what I learned is that she went, an applied early decision to Duke, even though her boyfriend was going to Cornell at the time, and and they were thinking that they might actually go to the same school together to continue that relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what she did was she applied to Duke early decision, and she left a uh, an unfilled out Cornell application just hanging around the house. Mm. So I was just applying to a, a SUNY school, a state school that I thought I could afford, mm-hmm. and then. My best friend's folks were like, you know, we'll, we've got this Cornell application, and we hear your grades are pretty good. Why don't, why don't you fill this out, too? Mm-hmm. You know, we'll be, and, 
And literally, Melanie Mason just, she held my hand through the whole uh, application process. So anyway, I mean, that was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, the $65 application fee, they said that they would, you know, pay that on my behalf. Then for the next, I don't know, four or five months, we just waited. Mm-hmm. And uh, in April of 1991, I received a waitlist and rejection letter from Geneseo. And then, you know, there was this point where I was just like, okay, if Geneseo doesn't want me, what what right do I have to even apply to Cornell? Somehow the acceptance letter came and and basically it just, it was a really unbelievable experience. Powerful moment. And then it was like a really scary moment for me at the same time. Right. Because, you know, acceptance letter in hand, I asked, I asked her, I said, you know, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. She said, well, you know, Eric, we, we firmly believe in giving all of our kids the first four years of, of their education. And I still, I was just like dumbfounded. I'm like, so what does this mean? Mm-hmm. That's when, that's when Melanie said, well, we're going to put you through school. Wow. Uh, that's awesome. So in, in that moment, you know, I realized that I, you know, I was about to live into my dreams. Right. And, and I had a new set of parents. Yes. So it was probably the the best two for one special I ever. <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. That is a miracle, definitely yeah. based on your circumstances and what you had been through. So what was it that so we can share about Dream Catalyst and some of the things you're doing that spurred some of that on and and how did that evolve before we share with the listeners how they can connect with you further? There were two big moments in that. You know, one was that moment. One was just knowing that my dreams were going to be intact and just the idea that to to help someone from a situation of of homelessness or houselessness or whatever I was really experiencing, it's going to take someone doing something really big for you. And it's important to to create the opportunities for those moments to happen more frequently. Mm-hmm. And another thing happened, it was just, there was this kid, Mikey, who was 11 when I was 17 at the shelter. And Mikey talked a lot. He was really sarcastic. You know, he had the face of Mikey from Life Serial. He had the, you know, kind of the the vocabulary of someone much older and much less quote-unquote innocent. But for some reason, we became close friends. And a week into him talking and not not really taking a breath, I just turned around to him and I said, hey, Mikey, why are you here? Mm-hmm. And he, he stopped talking and he just took off his shirt and he showed me a constellation of cigarette burns on his back. Mm. There's not a moment, uh, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about that, you know? Mm-hmm. So at some point, he just said, you know, my mom's boyfriend uses me like an ashtray, and until he can figure out how to put his cigarettes somewhere else, I'm going to be here. Mm. Wow. And, yeah. So, you know, when you when you witness something like that at 17, your your heart just totally shifts. I just sort of made like a pact with the universe. I said, I, when it's time, I'm going to come back and look out for these kids. Yeah. Um, you know, at some point later on, right before my best friend's folks took me in, Mikey told me that, that his birthday was coming up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting. I wore this thing called a Baja, which is like this Mexican burlap-y kind of hoodie. And he loved it when I wore it. And so when I, we became really close friends, I, I wore it almost every day. When I, when I first got taken in from, you know, by, by the Masons, 
first thing we did when I moved in was laundry because apparently, you know, the odor from the shelter wasn't the nicest. But I don't know if I had ever washed my Baja in the 50 or so days that I was living there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tons of laundry got done. And that that afternoon, I I put my Baja from the washer directly into the dryer, not knowing that I was in store for a miracle. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. So... And the miracle was that, like, within one dryer cycle, you know, the Baja went from, from Eric's size to Mikey's size, mm. you know, three days before Mikey's birthday. For so long, I was just saying, you know, what, what, how do I celebrate this kid's birthday? He's amazing, and he, and he needs to know how much I care about his day, his special day. Right. So when this miracle happened in the dryer, you know, I, I, I cried, you know, I just like, Wow. Here it is, the perfect present for Mikey. So I wrapped it up, and um, you know, I, I went to visit the shelter almost every day after school just to reconnect with the kids that that had become my extended family. And the day of his birthday, I just like I ran with this package, you know, wrapped up, and and he was in the doorway. He was just waiting at the shelter in the doorway, and it became really clear that I was the only person who knew it was his birthday. Mm -hmm. So like that was like this really powerful, like, kind of hint, you know, like, um, basically, you know, I understand what it means to, to not share your data, your birth with too many people because too many times that goes wrong. You know, too many times the birthday goes wrong and you'd rather, you'd rather not be recognized than be recognized poorly or have it be about someone else. Right. So I realized that he did a, he did me a huge gift by sharing the date of his birthday with me and, mm -hmm. and put all of his eggs in my basket. Right. Mm. So I'm so glad that I was able to be there on that day for him because I knew um, that if I wasn't, nobody would have been. Right. Um, it, just, it just planted a seed. So, so that just like, you know, kind of puts the, the bookends on what Dream Catalyst is. You know, mm -hmm. Dream Catalyst creation that that lifts the dreams of, of youth facing homelessness and celebrates their birthdays. In in the shelter world, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas are relatively good days in, right. in the lives of kids in shelters. You know, the, the world thinks about doing service on those two days. But there are 363 days that, that can go unnoticed. Right. And I want them not to go unnoticed, you know, mm -hmm. um, my watch. And, and that's what this is about. And, and it's, you know, I think that the one thing I can say, you know, having lived through this experience is that, you know, no one who, who sort of made it out to the other side of their own homelessness as a, as a youth would have said, well, if there was just one more sandwich, if there was just one more night of a good bed available, that would have made all the difference. What, what they would say is, you know what? Someone believed in me. Yeah. Someone got me. Someone yes. told me it was worth it. Someone, someone gave me permission to dream again. And those, those are the memories that propel us to, to serving the way we get to serve, to making the contribution that is, is deeply vested in, in all of us. Right. Um, and, you know, somehow, someway, we've, we've unlearned a lot of the things that we were born with. I'm glad that I found, you know, my calling and, and found a way to align fully and to em embrace the story that, that created me, mm -hmm. you know, that gave me amazing hints as to, 
to what this unfolding could look like and to what, you know, kind of a fulfilled purpose and nourishing mission could look like or mm-hmm. feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing, and, and that's a gift in itself. And, and you're amazing for having listened to all these signs and promptings and really following your passion and your heart. Can you share with the listeners how they could connect with you further and get involved with the things that you're doing? Dream Catalyst is www.dream-catalyst.org. Right now, we're based in Ithaca, New York. Uh, but what, what we're really trying to do is, is create a nationwide network of people who can believe in kids. And some of it is it, it's really beautiful because it's not just about the kids, it's about you living into your own dreams. So it's sort of it's sort of taking that quote, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. And if you want to show up as a mentor, you know, all I ask is that you're really passionate about what you're about to share with, with the kids in this world. Mm-hmm. The one way to do that is is invest in your own dreams and mm-hmm. and concentrate on the word be because we deserve it. You know, for so many generations we we sacrifice. We don't live into our dreams so that some other kid, maybe our kid, maybe someone else's kid, can live into theirs. Mm-hmm. And what what I realized recently is we don't know what people didn't do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's true. That's true. So this this term sacrifice, we just need to get rid of it. So so that's the simple way. I mean, email is eric, E-R-I-K, at dream-catalyst.org. We are under the umbrella of a 501c3 organization, so you can donate financial gifts to the organization, and that's on the website. That opportunity is on the website as well. I guess the important thing is to just reach out and and believe in this mission and to know that, that it is more than food, clothing, and shelter, that, mm-hmm. you know, before someone is is a really great way to start and mm-hmm. be in the dream catalyst you know camp without doing anything specifically for dream catalyst you know just start living into your dreams for me for 15 years you know i mean i i appreciate angela you saying that you think i'm amazing it took me a really long time to get back to this dream mm-hmm. it's it's important for me to admit that up front is mm-hmm. that like I pursued normal for 15 years. Graduated, I opened a restaurant, I raised money for Cornell, I you know, went into pharmaceutical sales, all in this pursuit of normal. But every day, every single day, an image of Mikey just kind of kept on nudging me and just right. saying, you know, you know, keep on, you know, like, don't forget where you came from. Don't That's forget right. where you came from. It's important to have the humility for me to, to share that. Like, did have this vision. Mm-hmm. And it took 16, maybe 17 years to manifest in, into to my current purpose and reality. Mm-hmm. I was living into the, to some of this mission you know, on a really micro scale mm-hmm. all of my life. Mm-hmm. Definitely on a one-on-one level, I found a way to serve. Now I get to do it globally, and now I get to grow this vision to scale. And it's really exciting. That's awesome. That is exciting. And I'm so glad that you shared that because I hear from listeners often that hear some of the people on the show, and, and they just want to know, how can I live my passion? What are, where do I start? What do I do? And it's, it's so important to know that it's all timing, and we do have other lives sometimes and then go on at some point when the timing's right and when things fit and healing comes and peace comes etc and that's when we can really start living out our dreams so thank you so much for that 
Eric, thank you so much for sharing on the show, for sharing a part of your story and talking about your amazing journey so far. I wish you the best in everything going forward. I know it's going to be awesome and really bless many people's lives, so I just really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. It's, I want to really honor, you know, the, the, the title of your mission is Your Story Matters. It's so such a hard process for some people to, to own their story and no exception for that. You know, like I didn't, I didn't want to be the hero in my own story for so long. I just wanted to thank the Masons and, um, and be in gratitude for them. And the fact that I, I now sort of get to be the hero in my own story and get to be like a hero so that my kids can know what, what a hero looks like in their own lives. By my kids, I don't mean just my three, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, the kids I get to serve. So yeah, thank you so much for for creating this opportunity and for believing in in everyone's story. So I appreciate it deeply. Thank you.